Hey everybody, my name is Axel Villamil. We're here back on 24 Shades of Blue. We're here with Peter Code, who is the acting staff superintendent in charge of detective operations, and Steve Irwin, recently retired inspector. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? Really well. Really well and really pleased to be here. Excellent. Thank you for having us here. Super excited to have you two here. Um, for everybody that does not know them, they are, if anything, heavily amazing people, um, highly, highly, highly trained and highly, highly, um, I guess, respected in their industry. So um, it, it's an honor to be here and, and speak with you too. Uh, we're going to get right into it. This is a very heavy topic, but also a very important one to reflect upon, to talk about. Um, today's topic for the episode is 9-11. Uh, and, and one of the first questions, you know, our team had for you is, you know, what were the Toronto Police's actions and reactions when 9-11 took place? And, you know, for I'm sure you both had different experiences. So I guess we can start with uh, let's start with Peter and then go to you, Steve. My, my experience is, is going to be very different than, than Steve. Steve was actually working in the industry, we'll call it, in relation to national security at the time. Uh, but for me, I was working as a uh, detective uh, at the sexual assault squad. And I remember uh, I had an active case uh, that morning and actually from the night before. And I was in a, an apartment of... Uh, um, of a building in downtown Toronto where a sexual assault had occurred. Uh, the person that was sexually assaulted was over at the hospital at that time with uh, healthcare professionals and also officers. But I was at the apartment uh, assessing the scene and we were just about to do a forensics uh, examination of it. And I remember the television being on. And while we were at that point um, looking at a horrific scene, um, we all became glued to the television uh, and saw the the first plane that goes into the into the World Trade Center, and at that time it was a very much an unknown what had happened. It wasn't until the second plane hit that it was it was like a shoe dropping where you knew exactly what was going on. At that point, uh, I think there was a lot of chatter from the commentators that it could have been a medical episode from the pilot and so on. But I just remember it being uh, incredibly unnerving. And then as that day progressed. Um, Obviously, this feeling of anxiety and anxiousness of okay, so so not only what has happened in New York City, and and the huge loss that was happening there, and you automatically think of your law enforcement uh, partners and your emergency responder partners, and if this happens anywhere in the world, um, but then it was also the the what will happen next, and and now do we, what do we have to do in our city to make sure that that we keep it safe. So um, my my experience very very different, but it's funny. I, I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. I thought it was going to go to Steve, <laughs> and that's the first time I've actually uh, spoken about that. But it's incredibly vivid for me. Oh, that, that's I feel like it's vivid for a lot of us. It's very interesting, actually. You went right to the point of you know clearly you've been in the industry for so long where you go, okay, what's what do we do now? You know, rather than wow, you know, I'm, I'm in shock or, or, or whatever that is for, I guess, a, a, the a civilian. Uh, since you two are both in the industry, I feel like that's a common reaction is let's go, go, go. I'm not running away from the fire. I'm going to run towards it and figure it out for not just uh, another city, but my own city as well. So that's, that's very amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Steve. Um, and certainly you, you nailed it into that we do run towards the, uh, the issues, not away from them. So on uh, September 11th, I'll go back a little bit before that. So I had a boss in intelligence in 1995 who had the foresight to see that terrorism was an issue. And we created a subsection within our security section of intelligence 
that dealt, it was the anti-terrorism section. So I started that unit in 1995 and had one partner. Um, as we went forward, we dealt with not only terrorist concerns and, and looking at those from uh, a city perspective and, and our public safety of our city, um, but also uh, threat investigations that involved people of profile, public profile and so on. But bounce forward to 9-11, I was actually at intelligence, still in that unit. Um, and uh, I was actually in Belleville, Ontario, at an annual uh, conference held by the Criminal Intelligence Service of Ontario. So all sorts of police partners and intelligence partners, not just police, including American counterparts. At the time, the conference on 9-11 had started, it was in fact a law enforcement officer from the U.S. that had made the opening remarks. So, you know, we started about 10 to 9, he'd spoke, and about 9, 10, 9, 15-ish, we broke for a minute. Actually, everyone else was dressed more casually. I decided to go up a set of, play, a set of stairs to my room, take off my jacket and tie. The cleaning lady happened to be in, the, in my room with the TV on. And it was the second plane that I saw. And she said, that's the second one. So my wheels are turning. Um, I went back downstairs. Um, so there were a couple hundred people at this conference from intelligence, law enforcement, police intelligence, but also other intelligence agencies and representatives. Our pagers, so I said to my colleague that I was there with, who was a detective sergeant, I said, Robbie, this is going on. It's a terrorist attack. We need to turn our minds to. And it was interesting because the whole room started to light up very quickly with our pagers. We didn't have the cell phones and smartphones that we have now, but certainly uh, it was the pagers and then picking up phones. So uh, we very quickly, the, the uh, conference ended immediately and everyone started to scramble back to their home agencies. Um, we reached out to our unit commander of the day, uh, Tony War, a retired deputy chief, and he said, why don't we set up our joint intelligence group? So we had a joint intelligence group with partner agencies, which could include Canadian Forces, D&D, Department of National Defense, CSIS, RCMP, OPP, the surrounding police services. We'd done that historically for major events. And so if you had a royal visit or you would set up what, a short-term jig, a joint intelligence group for that, he said, why don't we set up the jig? Um, Robbie and I got in the vehicle, you know, packed our stuff in the vehicle, and I was on the phone driving at a pretty high rate of speed, <laughs> heading back to Toronto because we we're setting up our jig in Toronto. Um, but on the phone, reaching out to all my partners, uh, had their phone numbers, knew them, and said, we're setting up a jig. It'll be in uh, our building at Toronto Intelligence. Um, and so there were two components that we looked at immediately. One was supporting our American friends and helping, um, but also getting information and access so we could assess the threat and the concern that we would have to deal with in our own right. And if it's happened there, will there be a domino effect? Will it be happening elsewhere? And so we're immediately starting to monitor not only North America, but certainly all, I'll say, the Western countries, our allied countries, um, to see if there's something more happening and if it's broader than it is. 
So our response was, so uh, it started on September 11th, that afternoon. We had 12 partner agencies, including the FBI, uh, and the rest were Canadian agencies. And then uh, we ran it 24-7 for the first few weeks. And then as it got uh, manageable, uh, we went back to about 6 in the morning till midnight every day. And then uh, we went through until February 2002. We had that joint intelligence group stood up. So no sleep. Taking all that information. Um, Not a lot. Go to to work and it was dark and wake up uh, or go home when it was dark. There was there was no daylight. <laughs> I was I think I was only geez nine when that happened. But I remember for about I mean, I think half a year, that's all we saw. Right. That's all I knew yeah. on the news. And just like trying to comprehend what had actually had happened was very um it was, it was almost educational from uh what the schooling system had to do for us. They had to explain what was going on. So because it was so much part of our lives and if anything, so heavily part of your lives. And now my question was, how was, how was both your mental health during this time? I mean, especially for you, Steve, like it's a very taxing time. You were probably exhausted, but I'm sure was it more towards that? I just want to figure out what we need to do next. I believe, and and certainly, you know, Peter and I both have spent a lot of time in specialized areas of policing. Um, I think we build up a bit of a resilience. Some of it is the way we were brought up in our nature, and some of us perhaps do better at it than others. I think it's a culmination of how you're brought up, your life experiences, your policing experiences help you to maybe be, or certainly I speak for the two of us, I believe our resilience is pretty good. And we actually do sort of click into that. We have a job to do. Um, and so it takes a day or two to juggle your personal life and, and you know arrangements on that to then say, we're going to be working really long hours going forward. But like Peter, I had worked in sexual assault. I had worked in homicide before where we worked long, long hours. We, we weren't clock watchers. So it, it became that. But um, we were also in the same boat as you in, in trying to comprehend what this was. I will say, and I've said this often in the, the 20 years, 9-11 taught us in policing and certainly in North America, there are no rules where prior to 9-11, you think, no, no one would do that. They did it. And what they did was so significant that now you are not so quick to dismiss, oh, that could never happen. It's like, no, now we get into a, a more in-depth and, and broader assessment of threats to determine what we can and can't do. And we look broadly around the world to see what is happening for, um, to learn, to learn in, in a, an ability to try and respond immediately to that situation, but if we have our own as well, and what we're going to do. So it's definitely a flip of the switch that you have to do. And I think that takes a lot of courage, but also confidence and experience to do that. How about for you, uh, Peter? You know, I I think we really weren't that good. 
at uh, taking care of our mental wellness back in 2001. I think that it's, uh, we've changed quite a bit. We've come a long way. I'm very proud of what uh, police agencies are doing now for their members. And when I say police agencies, uh, all frontline emergency responders. Um, but there was, there was, I'd suggest, pretty few uh, things in place back in 2001. And it was, it was a different culture then. Part of the big push for Toronto Police Services is certainly to change our culture and, uh, and to be able to um, embrace um, scenarios where you don't feel comfortable and where you do feel uh, vulnerable. And, uh, and we're doing that now, which I think is going to, well, I can already see that it's, that it's changed our membership and certainly changed for the better. Absolutely. I mean, speaking about big issues like this is always tough experience to experience it. But for you, Peter, could you tell us what your experience was like also speaking with first responders who were first to arrive at the scene when 9-11 took place? So yes, I can. So the my experience is quite a bit different than Steve's. So, so when I actually spoke with um, NYPD officers for the first time, really, about what happened on that day, uh, it was some. It was about a decade, a decade and change later. It was quite a ways afterwards. And the reason for it was uh, Chief Raymer had asked that I take uh, a good, healthy look at the plans that we had in place for the Toronto Police uh, in lieu of a number of attacks that had happened uh, overseas in Europe. And uh, one of the ways that that, that I. I tackled that was was to go to and to go to New York City and actually speak with the NYPD, who I believe were really leading the world in relation to the four corners of planning, of mitigation, of planning, of response and recovery. And so I went and spoke with the officers there about what plans they had in place, and that uh, and how we could then translate that into how it fit here in Toronto. We are very different cities. Uh, we are very different nations, uh, but certainly we could learn a lot, a great deal from the NYPD. I wasn't surprised by it, but what I found was even though it was a decade later, there were the officers that I spoke to, it felt like it was a very recent event. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still incredibly vivid and impactful for them. And there was a, at times, a, um, a letting go of emotions um, when they were recollecting uh, items and then would use that as a caveat to say, and this is why we now do this. I found it interesting. Because uh, as law enforcement officers worldwide, we take an oath uh, of community service to keep our communities safe. And I can tell you that the sense of unity that police officers, law enforcement professionals around the world have together because of that oath is immense. And for the most part, we have a lot of control and a lot of influence in keeping our communities safe. We can deploy officers, we can write plans, we can analyze crime data, and we can respond appropriately. Um, but what I found from that event and speaking with the officers was there was a sense of loss of control. There was a sense of uh, disbelief. There was no warning uh, before this happened. And the, the sheer magnitude of that event uh, was not comparable to anything that ever happened in the USA. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's, it's such a different thing to us for us to even try to comprehend that. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting because I can, I can relate that a little bit to an event that happened in Toronto, if I, if I yeah, can. Yeah, absolutely. That happened back in April of 2018. And it's, it's, it's now been referred to many times as, as a van attack in Toronto. And at the time, I was at Intelligence Services, uh, and my good friend Steve was actually uh, our conduit at the RCMP. And when that first happened, and we were talking about comprehension, when that first happened, it came in as likely a medical uh, episode where a driver had failed medically somehow and had now 
uh, uh, driven off the roadway and onto the, uh, onto the sidewalk and had struck pedestrians. And there was a, a very switched on sergeant from our emergency management unit that called me. And he said, I don't know what this is. I think this could be just a medical complaint. It could be just a car accident, but it doesn't seem right. We're just getting the first initial calls. I'm going to give you a heads up on that. And I think uh, pre-9-11, we probably wouldn't have thought too much about that. But uh, when I got that phone call, immediately, I picked up the phone and called Steve. Yeah. And said, Steve, not sure what this is. Um, I have a mandate to call the, the RCMP and the OPP. Uh, whenever we have a, an event that we believe could be a terrorist act. act. Uh, I did not believe that at this point. I had no idea what we had. Um, but I knew that I'm going to call Steve and just say, hey, heads up, be close to your phone, and I'll give you more information as we get it. Um, I spoke with the uh, investigator that ran that case. Um, and it's obviously, I don't want it all to compare in magnitude what happened on on September 11th. They're not the same. But for the people that were impacted and 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 victimized and injured and the families and the people that witnessed it still incredibly impactful to them. But I remember speaking to the very recently to the officer that investigated it. And he said there was a couple of police officers that were in line of a takeout for for a coffee and witnessed uh, one of the first strikes and believed it was a it was a just a fail to remain accident where the person has not remained at the scene had driven away. And they ran to the person that had been injured and started rendering first aid and then looked up to see that the van was still driving and still uh, acting quite violently. And that feeling already of, oh, my God, this isn't this isn't just an accident. And then the question, the doubt of should I have chased the van? Should I have stayed here with this person? They did the right thing. But it's just that that kind of an impact on a police officer. I saw that when I spoke with the officers from NYPD. Um, even though it had been a decade later. And I saw it when I spoke with the officers after that attack in April and then other events that happened that same year. It's an incredible experience that you're not going to forget because not only it was, I'm sure, very traumatic, but also at the same time, they had to be at their probably best at that point to to make those calls. So for you, Steve, when you were speaking to them, as you, Peter, you're talking about 10 years later, you were there probably talking to them on the day uh, or some of them, or the, your NYPD uh, counterparts down there. What was the the feeling uh, that you 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 got from them at that time? The the officers that I dealt with, and the ones that stand out most in my mind, are when we started the liaison program with NYPD, which Toronto was the uh, inaugural and first relationship for their program. Um, and that was on a handshake between then Commissioner Ray Kelly of NYPD and Toronto Police Chief Julian Fantino. Um, when the first liaison officer arrived in Toronto, he worked in my section of intelligence. And uh, certainly what he described, and, and on the anniversary every year, so Paul was here for a few years, we're, we're still in the program, um, we're on our fourth NYPD officer that's embedded in Toronto police. Um, every 9-11, we always go back to what their experiences were. That first officer really, um, we became good friends and, and I was the manager of the section. And so also had to look out and it was new. Uh, this is a foreign officer unarmed, <laughs> embedded in uh, the Toronto police and in Canada. Um, there was uh, a lot of learning that we had to do. 
um, on protocols and exchange of information. But certainly, I always remember Paul speaking of how clear the sky was, what a perfect day, September 11th, 2001 was, and when this happened. And then the response, and every officer I've spoken to, which is numerous, uh, FBI agents uh, that would have been in New York, and not only in New York, but the other areas, uh, Washington, where the other attacks and planes went down, every one of them goes back you can see to that moment, uh, as we all do to those major traumatic events in our lives, it takes us back to probably the odors come back to our minds, images, um, but certainly the impact it had. But it's interesting because, again, as police officers, we have this, I guess, uh, learned resilience and we go from being in a moment a spectator and uh, processing like everyone else to what do we need to do and where does that go? Um, it's interesting with the program throughout the four liaison officers that we've had, it's always a, a constant evolution. And to Peter's point, that relationship and that ability to go to New York and learn from them is an example that we've gone back to that trough so many times in so many different ways uh, in looking at how we're dealing with our ability to respond to terrorism or a terrorist attack. Absolutely. Was there ever any tension when NYPD came down and started working with you? Or was it just like, let's just learn about what's going on right now? Was there any like departmental tension? So between NYPD and Toronto, so NYPD, largest police force in uh, the U.S., yeah. Toronto largest in municipal police force in Canada. Uh, there was none between us. Um, both NYPD uh, experienced problems with the FBI because they are the federal law enforcement agency that are, I'll say through some legislation, are technically the ones who are the go-between with international partners. Um, and the RCMP here um, have the primary responsibility for national security and national security investigation. I use the term primary responsibility, not sole. Um, so there is challenges more about and, and about the type of information that gets shared and, and being, um, you know, adherent to guidelines so that we didn't give up information that we shouldn't on Canadians in particular which the RCMP normally were the conduit to share information outside, I'll say, of normal criminal investigations, which is law enforcement to law enforcement. But because both the FBI and the RCMP have primary responsibility for terrorism, national security, a little bit of challenge with municipal to municipal and the embedded part. Uh, but it's, it's benefited you know, I'll say all law enforcement partners and intelligence agencies in, in Canada, um, that relationship uh, as NYPD, I think, has benefited their federal partners as well. Absolutely. And I think just for the rest of the audience that's listening, would love to explain exactly what the liaison program does uh, just from top to bottom. And then we can kind of get into also how they're working with us today currently and with all the other countries as well. I would love to see if, uh, Peter, you could give us that. To me, it's a fantastic program. Steve was, was 
part of intelligence services when it actually when it actually started. Uh, I've uh, had the great opportunity to be down in New York and actually visit the liaison office. There's one of our officers that is down there currently, but has we've had one of our officers down there since the very beginning of this program. And what you have, and uh, and I'll, I'll I'll be a little cautious in, in everything that I say here, but basically what you have is uh, one large room, open concept room, where you have um, law enforcement officers from agencies from around the world. And uh, the ability that when something does happen uh, for those liaison officers to get exactly what it is that they that has happened to them uh, with with accurate information, and then be able to fan that information out uh, with the with the intent of of making sure that there is not a a reciprocal event, a copycat event, or if it's a part of a greater plan where it would happen again or happen. Uh, in, in tandem with whatever else has happened throughout the world. We've spoken about uh, some events that have happened in Toronto. Um, so just as much as we have a liaison uh, officer in New York City, uh, part of my role was to make sure that that liaison officer knew exactly what I knew about the events that were happening so that that information then could be fanned out. Uh, and so many of our law enforcement partners from around the world would have known in real time what was happening here in our city of Toronto to make sure that, okay, is this part of a bigger plan? What do we need to do? And so on. Interesting. So like things with Paris, for example, things that happened in Paris, we were noticed. We were, we were notified here, right, with our officers, vice versa, yes. et cetera. Okay, amazing. So it just sounds like, and I've said it to you too before, it sounds like just the Avengers of police uh, are all meeting together. So that's not how we would put it, but uh, I certainly appreciate your comments. <laughs> no it's you know it's interesting is that even even if there's not an event that happens on Canadian soil or in Toronto as a result of something that happens somewhere else in the world, there is certainly going to be a community that is impacted by it. There is certainly going to be a community that feels vulnerable, uh, may feel that they could be a target of something because of something that's happened elsewhere in the world. And so when we learn of a, an event that's happened elsewhere that perhaps did target a community, then we can deploy officers to an area to be able to show we're here. We're here. We understand what's happened elsewhere in the world. We have no information that there is a threat currently here in Toronto soil, but we are here. And by our presence, take some comfort. And if we can at all ease that anxiety, that's part of what we actually have to do. I had a question. Do you ever think that Toronto should do it the other way around, where I know it's NYPD is situating their officers in different countries and training places? Do you think it would be beneficial? I mean, if Toronto were to do its own liaison program, or is it just because NYPD is running it, it just makes sense that way? Because it's already a foundation. It's, it's that the foundation is there. Uh, what's really important for you to know is that our, our uh, relationships with other law enforcement professionals does not stop with the NYPD liaison program. We have fantastic relationships with other countries, other cities that are actually not part of that liaison program. Um, it's, it's something that we do as professionals. So I believe that, that the benefits of, of creating another one, um, they may not be as vast as, as one would uh, initially think. Uh, so I believe the NYPD program is an excellent program. It's the foundation that works well. And then aside from that, we can always spread out and, and actually get more uh, connections and partnerships with our agencies. I'll also offer, so what we've seen in relation to terrorism is at the highest level, at the chief and executive level of police services in the five eyes. So the five eyes are Canada, uh, United States, uh, the UK, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia. They have a leadership in counterterrorism 
uh, course that it's the chief and the deputies and at Peter's level that will go on that. So they also form at the executive level relationships. Terrorism, and certainly in the Western countries, um, is a significant concern to every police leader. So when you have the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, the major cities chiefs, which are for North America, those, there's always a terrorism education component and networking that goes on. So it's not just, I'll say, at the working and sort of middle to senior management, it's at the executive level. Um, those relationships are hugely beneficial when we need to uh, get situational awareness. And that's really what the liaison program provides. Um, a very quick example is so on uh, the train attacks in London, England, um, there was actually a liaison officer from the UK embedded with the RCMP who happened to be in Toronto. And I was, so on the, the day before, on the 6th of July, I woke him up at the Prince Hotel to say, hey, Neil, congratulations, you got, you won the uh, Olympic bid. On the 7th, I woke him up to say there's a tragic event. My interest with him was to find out what was the method of attack. So was it suicide bombers or did they leave packages on the trains? So, you know, a briefcase or was it um, and, and also what type of explosive? Because my wheels are turning that if it happened in the UK, they're five hours ahead of me. It can happen here. We're named by bin Laden as a target. Um, so what happens there could happen here. My wheels are already turning for what's the response to our transit system because we could end up with bombs on our subways. I think I fully remember when and, this and, happened. Uh, so Chief Blair was just appointed. There were two uh, acting deputies and he put about 200 officers into the transit system for people to have confidence. But he's looking for us and the intelligence side to determine what we can and is there more. So should we look at having bomb dogs deployed and accessible? Um, are they suicide bombers or are they suspicious or, or abandoned packages or briefcase? So if it's a briefcase, then we need to put out to our frontline officers, if you get a call for someone's left a briefcase, do not approach it. Treat it like a bomb threat on this day until we get more information and can better assess. So it ratchets up our mitigation strategies. And, and we, I, I won't say we pull out our playbook because I don't need to pull it out. It's pretty <laughs> yeah, in there right, yeah. um, as it is with Peter that, and then it's like, so what do we do? And, and messaging that is equally important through our corporate communications um, so that the public has confidence that we're, you know, we're on our game and, and what are the impacts? Those attacks that happen anywhere in the world and likewise for us when they happen here, Sharing that information is important because everyone in, in our world of anti-terrorism um, is already thinking, am I at risk? And is it, a, a, is it a cell? Is it part of a bigger terrorist group? And we're going to see a domino effect that will hit, uh, you know, the, the first dominoes knocked over and the next ones are coming. And that will happen every single time there's a major event. So providing and into that network of LOs, situational awareness out and in is hugely important. And that we don't waste time and resources. And look over here when 
We're spending time here because it's a normal ongoing investigation that requires our attention, but we're distracted by something that has a huge high profile and may uh, need a response. Of course. I feel like there's a huge theme I get with this podcast in general is that the more information, the better. And regardless, if you don't think that information is valid, having it at least, you know, there to sort it out to not be valid is better than nothing at all. And it's very interesting because from my perspective as a civilian, when those things were happening, we don't necessarily think, at least, at least I didn't, was like, oh, there's a, it could happen, but it's a lower chance because I'm all the way over here on the other side of the world. But you both and the rest of the department and your team go, absolutely not, because your experiences and you being in the field see that this is a high chance and possibility that it could happen here. So on those times when they were package bombs in other countries or what have you, I did notice, and it's just coming together now, and I'm just kind of realizing it like, wow, uh, you know, Toronto police really, you know, put their chests up at the same exact areas or because they didn't want to see a copycat or other things happening because a lot of my friends were going, you know, why is there so many police officers in the subway today? And for that very reason, it's just to make sure that that doesn't happen here. So it, it, in terms of that process, I know we can get into the details of the planning, but how do you even start to fathom what to do once you hear something happen across the world and how to protect us in, 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 in counterterrorism? So the, so the response that you speak of, and I'm glad to hear that you did notice that. Absolutely. And you're thinking about that now. Uh, it's quite immediate. So it's, it, that's, that's part of what we have planned for. That's part of, it's a mitigation strategy and um, it, it's two-pronged. Uh, one, it could deter uh, somebody from doing something. But the second part, just as importantly, is to create that level of, of calm or at least um, security uh, for, for the members of our city. And so, so every impact that happens around the world, um, it certainly will hit home with someone here. And so to, to us to be able to respond to that, uh, that, that's one of the easier things, I think, uh, for us to do. And it's something that we have been doing for, for a great many years. Another part that we do is we look when there are events. So a great example, when we had the blackout in 2004, we have an emergency response and we have a public safety emergency uh, management unit that puts out, you know, frontline policing and so on for what is our normal business. I am reaching in to the hydro people to say, what's the cause of that? That's one piece. So I was not embedded into the integrated national security enforcement team with the RCMP at that time, but I was the manager that was the conduit to them daily. Um, I'm equally conscious and expect to know from them where any investigations they have are and do they have their people in pocket because not that they caused the blackout but with the blackout there's vulnerability and so part of what we do and and our thinking is what are the vulnerabilities and how do we manage those to a point that we're satisfied and that i'll say if there's People being investigated who may have terrorist affiliations and want to do something bad, that they can't become opportunistic when that blackout. So that, or an ice storm or another weather situation. So we're constantly looking. And to your point, it's getting that information and our analysts knowing. And it's not just not always geographical. It's it's often, you know, sometimes we look. We've had threats to the financial sector. So is it the financial sector 
or is it the financial district? If you're going to blow up the financial district, it's not just the financial district. There's lots else. It's downtown Toronto. But is it a financial sector threat from a terrorist group, which might be, you know, an internet or a, a virtual attack as opposed to a bomb and other things they can do to, to certainly harm the economy and, and cause us other grief? Absolutely. Pre-9-11, I wouldn't know that a blackout is considered a possible you know, terrorist attack. Even, even before, I mean, I was, I was on stage exactly when the blackout happened and Stratford Festival shut down. Boom. So, you know, it was, it was scary for us, you know, what, what was going on. But at the same time, I was a kid at the time, it's a blackout, whatever. But you think now, even with internet technology, that could be something wiping out the grid uh, from other events that have happened, you know, very recently, um, taking it out like that. So everything, like you said in the beginning, there's no surprises anymore. There's no rules anymore or at least we turn was, our minds to it exactly we, we constantly are turning our minds to it what is the other thing yeah. you know what it could else it could be because um i think sometimes we may have be living in the idea that it's it's just one thing or the other when reality it could be so many other things so that's why you know you do what you do i guess one of my last points was how has the world changed in the past 20 years since the terrorist attack 9-11 now this is a big loaded question i mean there's a lot that has changed um, maybe get it to the point of where maybe you see how the force has changed as well as how counterterrorism is also handled. There was probably a razor sharp focus on certainly bin Laden and his group, um, Al Qaeda, and perhaps a little bit broader, um, for threats from that sect. It's interesting because over the years, we've had other terrorist groups uh, here and at doing fundraising, uh, maybe not looking to attack in Canada, but certainly fundraising. Um, Canada is a bit of a, a golden egg for uh, a number of different groups that are not here. They're based elsewhere in the world. But certainly, um, so I think what we've learned is get out of tunnel vision. Um, I think we've recognized that the threats are broader and certainly more recently, and we see it in the media, our own domestic threat. And we see it in the US in particular, but it's crossed into Canada for sure. The right wing, the the white supremacists, and uh, that they're not the only ones. It's actually become far more complex and complicated as to uh, what their either um, ideological, religious, or political um, motives are, which are part of the terrorist definition. Um, but it's interesting because there's lots of crossover. So it's not homogenous to it's either ideological, political, or religious. You could have a religious political overlap, um, and then an ideological one. And, and we could think of, you know, uh, some of the groups, the extremist groups, and if you look, you really couldn't pin them down and say they fit perfectly into this and only this. They don't. They overlap. And, and certainly, Peter, uh, in the chair that you are and certainly in what you've seen, um, the evolution in your time, too, uh, from someone that was not embedded with it would be interesting to go from what that was to obviously what you know now. <laughs> so, yeah, so I agree with everything that you've just said. The evolution of when you think about the attacks that happened back on September 11th, the day before that, that was unfathomable. 
And so now, and I think Steve mentioned it earlier on, is, is now uh, everything's a possibility from a law enforcement perspective. But that's not meant to tell everyone that we need to live our lives in the state of fear or anxiety like something is going to happen. What I find is since, uh, since uh, September 11th, the biggest challenge I think that we have is collectively um, to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that we can identify a terrorist by something other than evidence. Your religious affiliation does not make you a terrorist. How you dress, how you speak, the way that you were brought up, your cultural norms, none of those things make you a terrorist. And we have to be very careful not to think that we can identify them on anything on that spectrum. It's evidence-based. The strength of the city of Toronto is its diversity, but its greatest power is the ability to live in harmony. And I think if we are not aware or not at least uh, keen to the possibility of an unconscious bias, that we could really fall into a path that would be more destructive for our communities than actually growth and, and prosperity. And so to me, it's, that is our biggest challenge of, of let's continue to realize this is a small group of individuals. Um, it is not commonplace, and it is certainly not defined by all of those things that I've just stated. That's our biggest challenge. No, I love that. I think even though it is a challenge, it's also um, nice to know that it is a goal, right? You know, that it's like we're here for the evidence, we're here to get the information, and that's all that matters at that point. And finally is uh, the safety of the community. And um, that's the main thing that we, we love to hear. So, gentlemen, thank you so much, Peter, Steve. Thank you. My name is Axel Villamos, 24 Shades of Blue, and we're out.